0: Good morning. I got it right this time, right? Because Christmas Eve service, I said good morning. It was all wrong. So well, we're glad to be back in God's house on Sunday. Hope you had a good New Year's. We were really curious how many people would show up. I tell you, this service, much more well attended than the first earlier service for some reason. But, but we're glad you're here. Through December, we did a series of messages called... Um, well, it's always Christmas and then something. Uh, Christmas sayings, Christmas worship. And all of the messages were really geared towards taking a passage and trying to draw you into worship uh, during the Christmas season. And we're going to finish the Christmas series today. And I've titled the message today, Christmas Recasting. And the main verse I'm using is right there Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And I want to read to you the passage in its full it comes out of Matthew chapter 2 and this is also part of the Christmas story that a lot of times we don't look at as much because we're looking at all the shepherds and the magi and all that leading up to the manger scene but this is also part of the Christmas story let me read it to you and we're going to study it today Matthew chapter 2 verse 13 says Now when they had departed, that's the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And that's the verse I put up there. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Caleb, can you bring me a cup of water? I sang too furious over there. I need some water. All right. Now, as we get into this, I'm going to give you an illustration here in the first couple minutes because I, I really wanted to stick with you because everything else I'm going to teach is going to pour into this towards the end. Now, I titled this Christmas Recasting, and what I mean by recasting is this. Perhaps you've ever watched a movie or a TV show and you liked it and there was a character in there that you liked, and partway through the series, they changed the actor who was playing the part. Sometimes, they try to do it subtly, thank you, like you don't even notice or recognize it. Hold on a second. So this is what I'm talking about, where they say, you're not doing a good job in this role. We need to make a change. They take that actor, put them to the side. They get a new actor, insert them into the story. This is what recasting is, to recast it. Now. I have a couple of examples I want to show you. The first comes from the Marvel series. They recast the Hulk. And if you watch all the Marvel series, the, the, there was this guy, Ed Norton, he, he played… This is kind of the kickoff when they were starting to develop this whole series that was going to culminate in all these heroes coming together in this, these two big movies. And Norton was, was the Hulk, and then they recast him. And now, there's you can read about this, and people have different views about it, but one of the things I read was they said that Norton was not a team player. You know, he was too centered around himself. He was hard to get along with some of the other actors when they're filming, and they, they're they really trying to build a team. You need someone who wants to be part of a team, so they recast Ruffalo here, and Everyone forgets Norton because he's done such a good job. It's like, how can you even think about the Hulk and it not being Ruffalo? He's done such a good job, but he was recast. See, that's what I'm talking about. Here's another example. Maybe you've seen Back to the Future, those three movies, right? And maybe you don't know this. You only know Marty McFly as uh, Fox here, right? And that top picture shows you a different guy. That's because they actually hired an actor and had filmed for several weeks Until they got to the point where the producers were like, this actor's not going to work. He's too serious. And there has to be... Marty McFly has to have this kind of... Um, lightness to him as well. The whole situation's heavy, but he can still crack jokes and stuff. And even in the scene, you can see the top picture, there's the other actor they had. He looks so serious, right? And in the bottom scene, you know that's Michael J. Fox, and he became known as Marty McFly. And they replaced him. They're like, you're not, you're not doing good at this. We're going to set you aside and recast. Another actor has to come in and do it right. Okay. Another example, um, the wizard Dumbledore. You know, if there's all these Harry Potter movies, Dumbledore is one of the, the main characters in it. You may not know this. Maybe you didn't notice this, but after a couple of movies, they replaced him and they had to. You know why? Because the actor there on the left who started out playing him physically and really died in real life. So they could not continue on with him. They had to go find someone else to replace him and they did. And there's all these debates about which one does a better job, you know, playing him. Now the next one is just such a... It's like, I can remember in 89 going and watching Batman, and you know, Michael Keaton, he brought to life, and it was just the way they filmed it in the darkness, and, the, and it was just like, wow, I'd never seen Batman like that. I mean, did anyone see Michael Keaton play Batman back then in the 80s? It was like, wow, you know? But after a couple of movies, they replaced him. They replaced him with Val Kilmer, you know? And Val Kilmer came in, and it was like, it just didn't stick. It didn't seem right. And so, you know... He didn't work, so they recast him with George Clooney. And they replaced him again. And then there's this, like, I don't know if there's been a role that has been more recast or rebooted than Batman because then, you know, years later there's Christian Bale and he's the one that everyone's like, Christian Bale is the Batman, I mean, I'm Batman, he came up with that, you know, he's the guy that 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 really nailed it, that people love, that's the, the most people's favorite Batman, you know, but then they have this new guy today, Pat Pattison? I'm not even sure, he comes out of the Twilight series, I've never seen the Twilight series, it's like, uh, you know, I, I, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to like this guy, oh, and I even skipped Affleck, I mean, who could forget Affleck? you know as as Batman right there's just so many Batmen out there it's like how do you know which was you know this is this conversation and then you, you got to go back to the original right the original Adam West I mean that's back when they had real true special effects I mean look at those eyebrows I mean <clears throat> that was I mean and there's this whole scene that plays out where it's like who's the best Batman and Adam West is like you know, it's me, and they're like, what about Christian Bale? I mean, he epitomizes Batman. It's like he came up with the, he's made famous, I am Batman, you know, and Adam West just says, look, I, I went around, and people just knew that I was Batman. I didn't have to say that I was Batman. I think it makes me a better Batman then, right? There's all these debates, right? But this is what I am driving at, the recasting, where it's like, for some reason, they take the actor and they say, you're not doing a good job, or they're not getting along with you, and they set you aside, and they bring in someone new, and they says you got to do the job now and play this role. That's what I mean by recasting. Now, you might be saying, oh, I didn't expect this in a Christmas message. Like, where are you getting all this out of this passage? Well, hold on. We're going to come to that. We're going to lead up to it, and I want to show you as we walk through this passage some really powerful points that Joseph and God and His Word is going to give us and is going to lead us up to the answer of this Christmas recasting. Okay, so here's my first point. I already read you the passage, and here's my first point, that God's Word is calling you into a direction. And we get this out of verse 13, where it says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, God's Word's calling Joseph to do something. It comes to him and says, you're going to have to do this. And that thought right there I want to give to all of you because God's Word is always calling us to something. I don't know if you'll ever reach a point in your life where there's not some aspect of God's Word that's calling you to something. I mean, we're, we're all constantly trying to become more like Christ. Even at a basic level, you could say, we're never going to fully reach that in this life. So there's always an aspect where the gospel has application to your life that you have to respond to the gospel. God's Word is calling you to a direction. And in this story, we see that, that God's calling Joseph into a direction. And underneath this, I I, I bring out some points. First, the word is received through God's emissary. We have the context is an angel that has come, and the context is a dream. Now, I want to pause for a second, because God's word's going to call you into things. But I'm going to say this to you. Almost always, it's going to be the written word. And perhaps the, the emissary is, is a preacher of his word, or a teacher of his word, or a discipler of his word. But it's pretty rare that God uses what he does here with Joseph. An angel that comes into his dream, that's never happened to me. I've never had an angel come into a dream to give me direction, and yet sometimes in life. We seek that out. We seek out the most supernatural. We want that. We we want to. We have dreams, and we want to attribute that to, to, and God can use those things. But I wanted to pause for a moment and just say this to the church. I I kind of stand on this, and I talk about this a lot. You should not have an over-interest in the supernatural God through the angels and dreams without having a a firm foundation here. This is true, and sure, and stable, and concrete. There is a mismatch if somehow all of your directing is coming through these supernatural means, and you know nothing from God's Word. You should be building a theology of who God is out of the concrete. That's the first thing that I would say. But in this story, God uses the supernatural, and he comes to Joseph. And the angel, by what he says, it's God's word coming to him. So I put here, the word's received through God's emissary, but the word has authority because it's an angel of the Lord. It comes from the king of the universe. If it comes from the king of the universe, it has authority. We always have a lot of military in this church. It's an easy illustration to say, if you've got a general and the general sends his orders by way of some emissary to the private and the private gets the orders The private better obey the general because the general has authority. He doesn't go, Well, I don't know. I mean, let's, can we have a debate about this? You know, I don't think the general really understands my situation. And there's so many ways in which we can explain away the authority of God's word in our life and forget that it comes from the king of the universe. It has authority. We should be thinking about its specific application and how we are called into being obedient to that. So you've got this. You've got, it's an angel dream. The Word's received of the Lord. It has authority. And I just also tack in here, you know, if we're talking about attributes of God, this is a good passage because I always like to to weave in, you realize one of God's attributes is justice. And when you study that out of God's Word, justice means that he always makes the right decision. Sometimes the general might send it and then it's like, we got to obey it. We go into battle. We all died. That wasn't, maybe a better battle plan would have been better. But God's orders, God's instructions are always right. They're just. There's justice in every word that he says. There's never injustice from God. So we should be thinking about, sometimes I I ponder the the, uh, morality of that. If it comes from God, it's justice at its core, and it's always truthful as well. His word is true. He says to him, Herod is about to search. He's talking about something that's going to happen. You realize God, any word that comes from Him, omniscient, He knows all things. Factual, also possible. He knows the future. The Bible speaks of Him in this way. He is, it's always true. Whatever He says is true. There can never be untruth that comes from God. So, think about the words that He's giving, that He's calling you into, And I just, as you look through Scripture, even Jesus in John 17 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I'm the way, and most of the time I get it right, and the life. He doesn't say it that way. He says, I am the truth. And there's a way in which when you read Scripture, the essence of truth is found in God. Every other aspect of the entire universe could be cast against God, and any aspect of the universe that is, is lacking merit or untrue or lying and deceptive would be shattered or burnt away in His righteous fire of truth and justice. He is the essence of truth. Titus 1.2 says, God never lies. 1 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes In him. That is why through him we utter our amen to him for his glory. I just love this. All the promises of God find their yes in him. You know why? Because he's God. If he makes a promise, it's within him to be able to fulfill it because it's true, because he has the power to, the resources, the means to. And now, if, if there's a, par- there a, a set of parents in here that have children, they might understand this because you have one child that's asked one parent and says, can I do this? They say, yes, yeah, but I better go ask this parent over here because maybe I get a note from them. But but see, with God, it's like, if he the promise goes out, there's no questionable yeses. The yes is found in him, he has the means to make it happen. And the faithfulness, God's calling you into a direction we receive his word. It has authority. It is true. And I just, as I was studying this week, there's this one line. I wrote it down in here. I'm going to come back to it later, but I want, I want you to hear this. True doctrine. I want you to come here. True doctrine is the foundation of true delight. It's possible if you're a person who struggles with joy, check your foundation. If you've built a foundation here, true delight can be built on it. If your foundation has got unstable things in it, it comes upward into instability in your life. True doctrine is the foundation for true delight and joy. Now, let me move to the next point. The first is God's word is calling you into a direction. And through this message, I'm going to be saying to you, he's calling you. Right now, sitting into the seat that that you're at, he's calling you into a direction as well this morning. Now, here's my next point. God's word, trusted and obeyed, leads to salvation. God's word, trusted and obeyed, leads to salvation. Verse 14, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now I put this here because you see that Joseph trusts the word that's given, doesn't he? Because he, there's action. God calls him to do something and he acts. He doesn't contemplate, you know, with form a committee and make a decision about this. That's very churches are good at that. But he acts on it, and, and the thing I'm going to drive at is when God's Word is calling us to something, God's intention is that we respond in action to it. Now in here I put, first of all, God's Word is convicting on its own merit. Um, everything I said about God, it should be convicting that we should take His Word and move forward with it. We should act on His Word the fact that it comes from God is convicting enough. And I can tell you that many of you, I know you're going to sit there and you have experienced this in your life. God's word came to you somewhere and you felt it had application and it convicted you. Something about your life, the gospel needed to have application towards it. You read it, it convicted you. God's word is convicting because it's true. Now, Not only is it convicting on its own merit, but God's word is convincing by reputation of his faithfulness. There's a sense where, like, if you keep making promises and you fulfill those promises, then later over here when you make a promise, they tend to look back and go, you know, he's he's pretty good at keeping his word. There's a reputation of faithfulness in the life of God to his people throughout the Bible. He's a keeper of promises, the yes that's found in him, and the opposite of that, right? If, if, if you're somebody who makes promises and you don't follow through, eventually down the road in the future, you make a promise and someone goes, yeah, well, who knows, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Here's Joseph over here in the other chapter. God already came to him, God already gave him a word. He told him about Mary and who the child was and what to do. Don't, don't put her away. You need to still be her husband. And, and he has already got this pattern of receiving God's word and God being faithful to His word. And God built into that whole experience, things that were affirming the magi show up. Whoa, The shepherds show up. Do you realize the angels came and told us, God puts into the life your life things that will affirm that this was true, and the steps you took were the steps you should have taken. God uses the body like that to affirm faithfulness. Joseph trusts the word he's given. Joseph obeys the word he's given. He must act to be saved. And when you read through that, you see the action words, he rose, he took by night, right? I love that there's an emphasis that Joseph understands the situation. I'm going to uh, obey. I'm going to rise up. We're going to take this child. We're going to go to Egypt, like he said. But the angel didn't say, be sneaky about it and go by night. He understands the situation. We're going to go by night. If there's a threat to the child, we're going to try to go in such a way that is the most protective for the child. Action. In the Bible calls us to that, right? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, what? You will be saved. But there's this action that's needed to take. I need to search in my heart and see if the faith is really there, and it must come out of my mouth. I must at some point make a public declaration that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons we use public things. Jesus publicly died And we at some point have to publicly, you can't go through your whole life a closet Christian. You need to come forward. You need to plug into the body. You need to know that you're a believer so that the body of Christ can work on growth in your life. And there's action, public action. And you see the faithfulness of God. If you believe, if you confess, you will be saved. Joseph obeys the word that's given but jo- Joseph also here must obey to the end. And I have this thought as I was going through this, right? I had this thought, initial acts of faith followed up by abandonment can lead to destruction still, right? Because it says that they remained there until the death of Herod. So it could be I'm going like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey, we're going to take the child, and then we go, and there's these acts of faith, but there's this this continuing forward of faith working in their life. Because once they're at the destination, it's, it's still kind of like, uh, you know, where they move you and, and when, when you're going to give testimony. What's that called? I'm trying to remember that off the cuff. Uh, uh, where you don't want the bad guys to know where you live. Um, yeah, witness protection. Thank you. Uh, New Year's charades here or whatever this game's called. Like, you know, it's like they still got to be, it's just like they, they show up. Did you hear what happened in Bethlehem? They're slaughtering kids the age of yours that you got. Yeah, I know. It's all because of him. Uh, not a good decision. They're not letting the word out. You know, it's like he had to remain there. The threat's there. The fact that they remain shows they believe that threat was ongoing forward into the future. And the faithfulness is seen going forward in their obedience. Now, the point I'm making is believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know the Bible says going forward in your life is a testing of that faith? It's possible that people have initial acts of faith, but they abandon that faith and it leads to destruction in their life. Just like Joseph, he's teaching us that you've got to keep it going forward in your life. Now, I'm a guy that believes in the security of the believer. I could give a message on that, but I'm also balanced that with what I see in Scripture, which is a call to continued faithfulness and obedience in your life as a demonstration that the initial act of faith was real. In fact, the Bible talks about this. Hebrews 3 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And he goes on later in chapter three, he says, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You will see in scripture, a theology that says that there is a perseverance of saints who originally their confession of faith was a real and genuine confession. Paul writes in Philippians 2, "Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." He, Paul says, you got to work your salvation out every day. Every day there's some measure of my life that I'm rebelling against Christ and his word. And it's true. If I'm really following him, that means every day I'm trying to work that out in my life to continually learn how to be more obedient and not more rebellious. And it comes back to God's word and it guiding me on how to do that and to be obedient to that. Now, just look at Joseph. You know, it's like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The initial act of faith, we're going to flee by night and now we're safe. There's still, there's still a measure of their searching out there for him. They're going to destroy him, all the way up to the point where Herod dies. And he gives him that mark, right? Your obedience needs to go all the way to here until Herod dies. So we see that we're learning something from Joseph. Joseph trusts the word he's given. He obeys the word he's given, and he obeys to the end. And I have a a final thought about Joseph here, because I was thinking about this as I was prepping. Do you realize in all of these these accounts of Joseph, that we don't have a recorded word of him. Mary, we got her whole magnificat, you know, she's interacting with Elizabeth. And when the writers of the books of the Bible wrote their books, you realize that they interviewed people, that they got firsthand stories. Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired them to take all the information together to write what they did. But Joseph's there's no word of Joseph recorded. And I've always shared that one of my thoughts about Joseph is that, that, that we see him in the early life of Christ, but when he, in the Gospels, when Jesus has his ministry, he's not there. We have Mary showing, you know, come back to my house at the cross. He looked, Mary's there, but no Joseph. And the thought is that he died somewhere in that intermediate period. And what we get from him is no words, but action. Actions can speak louder than words, can they not? And here Joseph is demonstrating to us that God's Word calls us to something, the faithfulness of His Word, the action that is needed to the end, an ongoing work. Now, point number three is this, that God's Word leads to new beginnings. And this is where we're going to get to the heart of the recasting illustration. God's word leads to new beginnings. Because we have this little phrase in verse 15. It says, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, that's an interesting word, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, I'm going I'm to back you up a little bit to Matthew chapter 1 to explain this. And you can just listen or you can flip over there. But Matthew chapter one, verse one says this. Now remember, this is Matthew preparing, he's writing this letter. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then when you read on in chapter one, the whole thing is all this genealogy that you beget this person from this person from that person. And what is Matthew doing? Now, you may not be aware of this, but each gospel writer had a specific intent built into why they were writing what they were. Yes, it was a, it was a record of Christ in his life, but like, like the gospel of John in, in the writing, it focuses a lot on the confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. He was, he was emphasizing that, choosing the stories that he did to put them in the way that he did to, to, to tell a story about how the religious leaders were at war with Jesus Christ. Matthew's intent is to give you the credentials for his Messiahship. And in that early uh, time period of the church, people may have, well, well, how do we know? He fulfilled the requirements to be the Messiah. And he takes you, he orchestrates his book in a way to, to validate that Jesus was the Messiah. One of the best ways to do that is to start with the genealogies, that he was of a royal line. But the interesting thing about this is he uses this phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, this is biblos Genesios lesu Christu, a book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. It not, is not necessarily ge- the word genealogy, but the, but the word is tied to Genesis, to beginnings. And that is interesting. If you go back to Genesis, that phrase is used 10 times in specific situations. I wanted to take you to one of them. This is an example. In Genesis chapter 10, it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, and it lists them. And you know how many times in in Genesis, it does that beginning. And here's the list. Here's another beginning. And here's a list. Here's a beginning. And Matthew does that. He says, here's a beginning. And he's giving you the genealogy and what is going on. Now, I I did a study in my years of schooling on something called the toliadot phrases in Genesis. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. I have time to explain the whole thing, except to say this, that the belief is that when Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, You might say, how did he know a lot of those things? Some of those things are detailed. Was all of it passed on verbally? Was it all the Holy Spirit? But each toliadot phrase is a section where somebody wrote those genealogies and passed information on by hand. And so when Moses wrote, he had this collection that he used. Just like if I were to do a, a writing of the Elwell family, One of the first things I would do is I would go to to my great-great-grandmother in the line. She wrote this book about how the Elwells came from the East Coast to the West Coast in covered wagons. And there's all these interesting stories how how the wheel broke and and this child was bit by a snake and died and one guy said, I'm not traveling anymore. He married an Indian woman and they started a business where they took people across a river on a flat boat. What are those called, a barge or whatever. I would go there. I would have something in hand to use to write that. This was Moses. And what is my point? My point is to say that, that, that Matthew, when he wrote what he's writing in chapter 1, what we're studying right now, borrows a phrase out of Genesis that says there's a beginning point right now. It's like a new section. And we also get that from this word, fulfill. That's why I said it's an interesting word. This was to fulfill this phrase, the prophet said, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And that word fulfilled can have two meanings. It can mean word literal fulfillment, but it can also mean bringing to light what previously had been in the shadows or bringing to a climax. And when he begins his gospel, Matthew, with the book of the Genesis of Jesus, he is strongly suggesting that this story of Jesus Christ marks a new beginning for the people of God. It's a climactic moment. In the whole story of the Bible, Matthew wrote his gospel in a way to make a declarative statement in chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's something new going on right here. And you said, well, sure, because it's Jesus, God in the flesh, but there's something else. And it's in this phrase. Look what the phrase says. Out of Egypt I called my son. And the answer is what was being fulfilled. The answer is the redemptive historical purposes of the nation because Jesus is going to be the recasted one. You see, Israel was also called out of Egypt. They used to be enslaved by Pharaoh. Remember that? And when Hosea was saying that, He's talking about Israel being called out of Egypt. And Matthew connects to that, Jesus also is going to be in Egypt and is going to be called out of Egypt. It's the same role. And you know what? The first actor, the nation of Israel, did a bad job at the role. The new actor we've got, Jesus Christ, being also called out of Egypt, now he's going to get it right. Isn't that interesting how all that ties together? See, Hosea said this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. He goes on to talk about my first son, Israel, when I called him out of Egypt, he was bad. He, I called him out of Egypt and he went after Baals and he served other idols and he committed adultery. That was the son that I called out of Egypt in the Old Testament. And now we get to the New Testament, Right? Matthew is declaring that Israel is being recast in Christ. The waywardness of Israel is recast in the true Israel, his son, Jesus Christ. Do you make the connection here? That's why I started with that. This actor, not very good at getting along with other people, so we're getting rid of him and we're getting a new actor. And that's what's happening in this moment. And the way he's phrasing these things is telling you that. In fact, I made a chart. Just so you could see some of these parallels, Israel's recasting. Israel's in Egypt. Jesus is in Egypt. Pharaoh, out of fear, kills infant boys. Herod, feeling threatened, kills infant boys. Moses is saved, hid by his mother. You know the story, he put him in the basket, put him out in the water, right? Jesus is saved, hidden in flight by Mary. There's a pursuit and search by the Egyptian army after they've exited, right? Well, as they're fleeing Egypt, or as they're fleeing to Egypt, there's this similarity. Soldiers are searching. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, because that first son, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they came up against the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army pursued them. The waters parted and God's people went through. His son went through the water to the other side. And do you know Paul calls that baptism? In 1 Corinthians 10, 2, he says that Israel experienced this baptism, this uniting to Moses as a leader through that Red Sea experience. And here's the thing. In this whole account we're studying, do you know what the very next scene is that Matthew lines up? The very next scene is John the Baptist who comes to Jesus, and there's a baptism. Two baptisms. And then, if you go on after the baptism, uh, in Israel's case, they wander in the desert, and they're constantly, their faith is tested, right? What happens after the baptism of Jesus Christ in Matthew's narrative? After the baptism, he goes into the wilderness where he's tempted three times see these parallels? And then we have, maybe as a summation, Israel's exodus led to idolatry and adultery. But Jesus called out of Egypt would be the faithful son. Matthew is recasting the failing nation of Israel to the good son. What a fantastic piece of writing by Matthew to line it all up that way, to make that connection with Hosea, to call that verse in the same way I've called my son out of Egypt, but this is going to be the good son. He's going to get it right. He's coming back to Israel not to be an adulterer and an idolater. He's coming back in e- to, to Israel and he is going to fulfill the law in every way to its perfection. He's the good son. Now, each one of these points I've given you has always been... About God's word calling and what it's doing. God God's word's calling you. There should be an obedient response, a faithfulness to that, and that it leads to new beginnings in your life. But there's something else too in this story, and it's captivity. When I read this last section. We have Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, here's what I put in here captivity leads to sorrow, it leads to sorrow. And I'm going to make this tie-in that there's a way in which all of us have an aspect of captivity in our life. We're captive to some type of idol. We care too much about this one thing in our life, and it overshadows Christ in our life. And in this story, we get this piece. There's this duality of Joseph receiving God's word. It's calling him to something. He's obedient. It leads to salvation and continued faithfulness. But there's also captivity. There's also being captive to something else. Herod has a power And what do we see in that? Captivity leads to, and there's three things I noted. One, fury. He's furious. It leads to destruction. He's destructive and murderous. He sends out and kills. But he's also smart. It uses the word ascertain. He is not dumb. I mean, he did get tricked by the magi. The angel came and said to them, don't go back. Because Herod means to harm the child, so they don't, but Herod told him, look, I want to worship him. Lie. Tell me when you find him where he's at so I can come and worship him. No, he wanted to kill him. And when you know the Magi don't come back, at some point Herod goes, they're not coming back. We've been tricked. And that's why there's this time lapse. Why did he kill all the way up to two years? Because he ascertained. He took all the information from when they came in and said, Where's this king that's born to? He hasn't come back, and they figured out that's the the age. We got to go with that. Two years and down, we got to kill. In every one of these descriptions of, of, of captivity, fury, murderous, destructive, but smart. Every one of those, I could give you verses that describe Satan. It is the heart of God's enemy fury and anger at the holy God, murderous and destructive of His creation and His people, but yet He is smart. He is clever. He is not dumb. And He creates doctrines to deceive and disseminates. And that's why there's this need. We can be captive here or we can be led here. We can be led by this over here, or by God's Word. And if it's this that takes us, look, look at what happens to captives, the condition of captives. I'll read to you the last part, it says, then was fulfilled. So in this moment of ascertaining and murdering in fury, Matthew writes in verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And I draw out of that. What's it like to be a captee? Weeping, lamentation, no comfort. And there's a way in which, if we are led by this over here, you'll find a measure of that in your life. Weeping. Lamenting, you will not find comfort because you're seeking for it in the wrong things. And God's Word is calling us to something. And you know this little section, this Jeremiah, when he says this, you know who Rachel was, right? Rachel? You know the story of Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, and then Jacob steals the birthright and he goes over to another land and he falls in love with this girl? And the dad says you work for me 7 years you can marry her. He works for her and he, the wedding night he shows up and he he gets the sister. <laughs> He's tricked. The the trickster is tricked cuz he was a trickster himself. And so then he gets the he got to work 7 more years to get this the, the girl he wants, the sister. That's Rachel, the one he loves. Right? And the story is is it, he he ends up having children through four different women and, and they become uh, uh, the nation of Israel, but in his traveling back she's giving birth at one point and the child died. Or, I mean, she dies giving birth. She dies giving birth. And there's this lamenting and this weeping, but when Jeremiah uses the passage, he's talking about Israel being taken away into captivity, but he comes back to this point where the mother of the whole nation died trying to give birth to one of the sons that would become the nation. And this is what he uses to captivate that. The the city Ramah. It's like Bethlehem's here. Ramah's here. And it's like, the weeping is so bad, us over here can hear it in the city over there. And it's a way of emphasizing where being a captive takes you. Now, I'm going to wrap this up because I think there's a lot of application here. New Year is always a good time to think about recasting, right? And it's possible, right, that there are aspects of your life that you, there can be a recasting in. But I want to start with this. If you are a child of God, you've already been recast. I want you to know that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In the same way that we said, this actor, not good, put him aside, bring in a new actor. You put away the old and you are now new. You are a child of God, no longer a child of darkness, a child of the world. As John writes in his epistles, but you are a child of God in the family of God, son of son to the king, heir to his kingdom. That's a new identity that you are. Now, it could be that even though in that new identity, you're kind of like that Hulk actor, you're not a team player, and you go to the God's word, and it says, consider the needs of others first, Philippians 2 put the needs of others before your own. Maybe you're, not, you're like McFly. You're just too serious about troubles and, and it steals joy. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. Maybe you're more like Dumbledore, not physically dead, but spiritually you're dying. You need a renewal. You need to come back to knowing who God is. This is is the one thing that gives us the most accurate description of who God is. Colossians 2, God made you alive in Christ. And one of the things that Paul writes is, one of his great desires is to know Him, to know Him. How well do you know Him? To build into your life in this new year, time with this to to know Him greater, Maybe you're like Batman. There's just too many reasons, right? Too many reasons. You can find something, right? One of the saddest stories about the whole Batman's, Val Kilmer wrote this book, and he talks about his serving as, the time as a Batman, and he said he got later in life. And, you know, kids grow up, they like superheroes, and he's, you know, you know I'm, one day I'm going to reveal I was a Batman, you know, and and he says, he tells a story where he, he sits him down and he's, we're going to watch the Batman movie where I'm Batman. And they watched the movie and he said, it was so sad because b- before they got to the end, every kid had left. And he said, I was on the couch watching it by myself. And he said, I felt like a chump because my version of Batman was not very good. He didn't like it. And there's something about a searching for an identity, oh, if I could just be that, if I could just be more of this, if I could just, you know, lose weight, be prettier, have more money, get the promotion. There's so many reasons that can steal our joy. And I go back to that true delight is found in true doctrine. If you're a person who struggles with joy, check your foundations because true delight is found in true doctrine you know who God is. Well, I don't know what God's Word is calling you to. I think if you're sitting there, it could be something different for everyone in the room. And I just wrote down three quick ones. You know, it could be this. There's something personally God's calling me to, but what is He calling you to? Well, a couple of things I wrote that are, could generically be a lot of us, Philippians 3.10. Is what i said earlier that i may know him and the power of his resurrection a recommitment a recasting in 2023 of time in god's word to know him to know him more there's no greater knowing that you can have in 2023 than god perhaps a recasting In a different area. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Maybe there's just something about your body that's unholy in God's eyes, the way you use it, the things you choose to do, what you watch, what you listen to, the conversations you have. Paul says, look, I'm urging you, brothers, I'm urging you, present your body I appeal to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a form of worship, Paul says, to take a look at yourself and how can I live in a way that reflects Christ better. Lastly, I put Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this kind of ties maybe to the the examples I used, all three of these, you know, the, the, the Hulk, Midfly, the Batmans, but that was one of them, that, that you put the needs of others. I think the world is very good at shaping self-centeredness in all of us. And it's so diametrically contrary to the gospel. The gospel is the opposite of that. The gospel is that you put the needs of others before your own. And maybe in 2023, There needs to be a recasting there. But but in general, what I want to say is 2023, New Year's are always a time to think about these things. And we get this great story in Christmas that is the best recasting that there ever was. The bad son in the nation of Israel recast and Jesus, the good son called out of Egypt who lived perfectly the law no sin so that He could go and be the sacrifice for us so that we can have life eternally in His Son. Thank you, Father, for this great story about fleeing, the example of Joseph, no no word do we ever see him speak but actions can be louder than words, and and he lives it out. Many people speak great things with their mouth and do nothing with their body or their lives and actions, but you are a God who calls us to action. Joseph did that. Thank you for his example. I pray that in this new year, we would be a people of action, but also, God, to be grateful for Christ being that new son called out of Egypt, recasting the bad son, Israel, so that He could fulfill your plan of salvation, putting others first, dying on the cross, our needs before His needs so that we can have eternal life in you. May we look at the new year with hope, knowing you're a loving God, knowing you're a God with new mercies, knowing you're a God who's constantly starting over with us as we fail you and rebel, but may we be committed to recasting areas of our life to honor you, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Spiritual worship, Lord, we lift this up to you in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and we'll finish singing.